Welcome to the first episode of American Policing, Notes on a Scandal. I'm your host, Nicole Mann. And this season, the first, we are going to be looking at the LAPD. We're starting with its history. Now, not many people know that the LAPD started as a volunteer police force. During the California Gold Rush, Los Angeles was known for its violence, gambling, and vice. It had an extreme lack of effective civil law enforcement. It was reputed to have the highest murder rate in the United States at the time, and the countryside was infested with bandits. Most men went armed with pistols and knives, and lynching was often the method used to dispose of lawbreakers. Courts being few and ineffective, no one really ever saw justice. The first specific Los Angeles police force was founded in 1853 as the Los Angeles Rangers, a volunteer California state militia company that assisted the existing county sheriffs in enforcing the law until it was disbanded in 1857. The Rangers were supplemented from 1853 by the Los Angeles Guards, a local volunteer California state militia company that lasted until 1880, and then by the Los Angeles City Guards from 1855 to 1861. In 1868, Crystal Ball Aguilar was the mayor of Los Angeles and had two officials in the city's employ that were involved in law enforcement. William C. Warren was the marshal and S.H. Bryant was the overseer of the chain gang. The records of late 1868 tell that Mayor Aguilar's start was for something bigger. On a motion, he resolved that his honor the mayor appoint a city police force by and with the approval of the council to consist of just four people, said the records that are in the city hall archives. Records identified the four men who would join Mr. Warren and Mr. Bryant to form the first paid police force in early 1969 as J.E. Reese, Robert Dobson, and Jose, Jose Ridona and Joseph Dye. They were all approved for appointment as official policemen. They began drawing pay as the organized police force in January 1869. The law enforcement function in Los Angeles had existed in a less organized fashion before them. The humble beginnings of a fully authorized and paid city police force came about on January 4th with the issuance of paychecks to those approved by the Common Council of the City of Los Angeles. These were still the early days of Los Angeles. There were no uniforms to distinguish the earliest officers from the remainder of the horse-riding residents. Officers' badges were eight-pointed silver stars, and they were affixed to their top coats, vests, or shirts that were flannel. Neither were there uniformity in their handguns or handcuffs. No procedural manners, manuals even existed. Most house, houses of ill repute and liquor establishments were the roots of crime on their unpaved streets. This was a six-gun city now, policed by a six-man force, a police force that appears to have been officially born on January 4th, 1869. The first paid police force 
that only had six officers was run by city marshal William C. Warren. Warren, however, was shot by one of his own deputies, Joe Dye, in 1870 in a quarrel over a reward. To replace Warren, the newly created Board of Police Commissioners selected Jacob F. Gerkins. The later was replaced within just a year by a saloon owner named Emile Harris, the second of 15 police chiefs from 1876 to 1889. The first chief to remain in office for any amount of time that was considerable was John M. Glass. Appointed in 1889, he served for 11 years and was the driving force for increased professionalism in policing. By 1900, there were 70 officers, one for every 1,500 people. And in 1903, at the start of the civil service, this force was increased to 200. Although training was not introduced until 1916, the rapid turnover of chiefs was renewed in the 1900s as the office became increasingly politicized. From 1900 to 1923, there were 16 different chiefs. That's almost one a year. The longest lasting was Charles E. Sebastian, who served from 1911 to 1915 before going on to become mayor. Now think about that. The longest lasting police chief during that time was four years. In 1910, the department promoted the first sworn female police officer with full powers in the entirety of the United States, Alice Sebens Wells. Georgia Ann Robinson became the first African-American female police officer in the country in 1916. Now, I have always said that I'm going to acknowledge the great things that LAPD does as well as going over their scandals. The LAPD was always progressive in hiring female police officers and in times and in and people of color. During World War I, the force became involved with federal offenses and much of the force was organized into the special home guard. In post-war period, the department became highly corrupt along with much of the city government. The state lasted until around 19, until the late 1930s. Two police chiefs did work within a mandate for the anti-corruption and reform units. August Fulmer laid the ground for future improvements, but served for only a single year. James E. Davis served from April 1st, 1926 to December 29th, 1929, and from August 10th, 1933 to November 18th, 1938. The turnover of these chiefs in the early days is just insane. In his first term, he fired almost a fifth of the force for bad conduct. Wow. And instituted extended firearms training and also the dragnet system of policing. In his second term, Davis instituted the infamous Red Squad to attack communists and their offices. In the United States, Red squads were police intelligence units that specialized in infiltrating and conducting countermeasures and gathering intelligence on units on political and social groups during the 20th century. 
dating as far back as the Haymarket Riot in 1886. Red squads became common in larger cities such as Chicago, New York, and Los Angeles during the first Red Scare of the 1920s. They were set up as specialized units of police departments as a weapon against labor unions, communists, anarchists, and other dissidents. The official website of the Los Angeles Police Department states, With his return to office in 1933, Chief James E. Davis deployed a Red Squad to investigate and control radical activities, strikes, and riots. By today's standards, the squad's tactics were absolutely intolerable, but its members have the blessing of government officials and the business community. In referring to individuals deemed subversive, one police commissioner voiced his views by declaring, the more the police beat them up and wreck their headquarters, the better. Communists have no constitutional rights, and I won't listen to anyone who defend them. July 1970 saw restructuring, which resulted in Organized Crime Intelligence Division and Public Disorder Division, that eventually became anti-terrorism, or TERU. So the Red Squad turned into Organized Crime Intelligence, and then eventually anti-terrorism. So even the their own website currently disavows the tactics of the Red Squad. But now we're going to talk a little bit more about the Red Squad and the LAPD. The initiation or creation of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences in 1927 was a direct response to the earlier growth of union sentiments in Hollywood. Now, its whole purpose was basically to become a company union. Now, everybody knows that the Academy is well known for their Oscar ceremonies, but many people aren't aware that it originally was created to become a sort of union. At the turn of the century, the state contained one of the nation's largest socialist parties, which helped to spawn a fierce police state apparatus designed to stamp out all traces of labor radicalism. The Socialist Party mirrored the CSU in several ways. Both were influenced heavily by unions, both deemed terribly radical, and both were weak on race matters. In retrospect, the Socialist Party's attraction to Oriental exclusion laws weakened their attempts to broaden their base. Thus, with the Red Scare brought by World War I and its aftermath, the Socialist Party quickly found itself on the defensive as vigilante methods organized along military lines were wielded against the quickly fading organization. Los Angeles pioneered the crushing of labor dissidents. The Los Angeles Police Department's Red Squad, headed by former labor spies the, for employers, the city of Los Angeles was ruthless in its handling of strikes or any other form of dissidents. Picket lines were assaulted with nightsticks followed by tear gas, projectiles, and guns. It was an official routine. The unit broke up every demonstration of organized communists in similar groups. They raided communist halls every two weeks. They confiscated literature, broke up depression-related gatherings, there was an indiscriminate targeting of political figures, writers, ministers, journalists, and prominent citizens. The Red Squad served as an 
arm of tactical terror by for the Merchants and Manufacturers Association. They were a powerful group of businessmen. Writer Carrie McWilliams stated in the 1930s, at least one member of the board of directors of every liberal reformist organization in town was a police spy. In Los Angeles, there was a powerful alliance of businessmen, boosters, super patriots, and right-wing evangelists. They combined to make this rapidly growing city hell on earth for anyone who wanted to go on strike. Hollywood didn't escape this repression. This fact immediately struck anyone who tried to set up shop. The authorities seemed to fear that depression-influenced art was much too oriented towards the working-class radical. John Howard Lawson, Clifford Odets, Bennett Cerf, Malcolm Cowley, and other luminaries published a pamphlet in 1935 providing gruesome details about the plight of the progressive theater. They decreed, quote, police terrorism, nightsticks, tear gas, riot calls and jails, municipal persecution, violations of non-existent fire regulations, condemnation of theaters used for years, trumped up charges of blasphemy or obscenity, the threat of losing your day job if you appear in an amateur production of a play of social protest, and the kidnapping, beating, and robbing of actors and directors, such are the dangers that confront the vital, sincere theaters in America today. End quote. As so often happens, there were other crimes, large and small, that weighted a number of great fortunes of Hollywood. There's a flood of capital from mobsters. That's what propped up the industry. Now, writers were what the industry rested on, and they were subject to a special type of exploitation. They regularly did not get recognition for their work. But it wasn't only the writers who were being targeted by moguls. Edward M. Gilbert of the Screen Set Designers, Illustrators, and, and Decorators Guild recalled that in the early days of the industry, sick designers were discharged by MGM Studios for no reason other than attending a committee meeting in a private home with the possibility of organizing was discussed. The studios maintain their own core of spies to ferret out information about labor organizing. In 1933, for example, a top official of the Pinkerton Detective Agency forwarded a report to Universal Pictures concerning the IWW, an anarcho-syndicalist wobblies, and its alleged influence on unions. But it was the Red Squad that was the most pervasive organ of surveillance. The group's files included mailing lists of anarchists, radicals of various types, immigrant groups, and the like. It compiled weekly intelligence reports that scrutinized virtually every single twitch made by every presumed agitator in all of Southern California. In the fall of 1936, William Hines of the Red Squad was hailed by an entrepreneur who told him, I believe our boat builder strike at San Pedro is practically over and it's due to the wonderful protection you gave us in maintaining law and order. I am happy to say that the shops are running non-union. The Red Squad also kept in close touch with the right wing globally, 
1934, for example, Hermann Schwinn of the Freunde des Neuen Deutschland informed William Hines about an upcoming mass meeting in Southern California protesting the anti-German boycott. He went on to thank Hines personally for the splendid service your department has given during the visit of officers and men of the German cruiser Korsha. The LAPD also shared information concerning various Italian radicals in the region with the consulate of Italy. However, being on the West Coast, the Red Squad maintained a keener interest in ties with Imperial Japan, which too had an interest in cracking down on Japanese and Japanese-American radicals. In 1937, Keiru Nakashima, secretary of Tokyo's consulate, sought information from the LAPD on the organization and system of the Communist Party in California, including the number of communists. Amazingly, this information was forwarded and it might have proved helpful to Tokyo after Pearl Harbor if the invasion of California had come to fruition. The consulate sought specific information about a Gio Ashinga. His false name is Gio Tuada, who was a member of the Red Communist Party. Heinz contacted General Ralph Van Diemen of military intelligence about the information and his possible association with prominent San Diego Japanese, who may or may not be members of the Communist Party. But Japanese and Japanese Americans with Hollywood connections interested the Red Squad as well. The group was seeking information on Charlie White, who was supposed to be half Japanese and half Russian, or maybe English. Close enough. He was posing as a costume expert and character actor, he's understood to have mingled with the John Reed Club members in Hollywood. Supposedly, he was engaged in unspecified espionage. He was sort of slanty-eyed, but not as much oriental. What does that even mean? Sort of slanty-eyed, not as much oriental, and almost passing as a white man. This, the racism is strong, guys. The racism is strong. He was said to be running around with the white, there you have it. He was running around with the white girl. He was born in Japan and spoke English, Russian, and Japanese fluently. Imperial Japan, which is a few years, which a few years later attacked the United States, was thankful to the LAPD for its aid when it routed communists who were picketing in and about the entrance of Yamamoto Hall, where a Japanese statesman was addressing the members of the Japanese community. The Red Squad collaborated with domestic as well as foreign elites. LAPD provided pistol permits and gold badges to numerous directors, executives, and actors. According to the new masses, quote, this award is bestowed with the understanding that the recipients will be ready when called upon to fight the war on Reds. Like, this is the equivalent of giving Nick Nolte a badge and a gun so he can fight the war on terror. Like, why? Just, just, no, no. What seemed to rile the rightists particularly was the idea that radicals driven by the depression were diverging sharply from the stereotyped image they had enjoyed previously. 
Heinz noted bitterly, in the past years, the popular conception of a revolutionary was of a vicious-looking, broad-shouldered, deep-chested man wearing bushy whiskers whose eyes blazed with the fiendish light of maniacal fury and hatred, clothed in uncouth garments and carrying a bomb in his pocket and a sword in his hand. Like, really? Seriously? Were people really out there looking for a mustachioed, barrel-chested dude with a bomb hanging out of his pocket? This makes me think of the scene in A Christmas Story where Ralphie is imagining what it's like to have a Red Ryder BB gun and he sees the bad guy in the striped sweater with the mask. Is this really what was going on? Were they really looking for the mustachioed bad guy with the bomb hanging out of his pocket? Like, come on, guys. <laughs> no. What scared them the most was knowing that now the most dangerous apostles of communism and revolution were fresh-faced and fair-haired. They were upset because communism was becoming white. The provost at UCLA, Ernest Moore, agreed, calling his campus one of the worst hotbeds of campus communism in America. Despite the ferocious repression visited upon Southern California, the 1930s witnessed an upsurge of radicalism that the Red Squad could not arrest totally. With the replacement of Mayor Frank L. Shaw in 1938, the city gained a reformist mayor in Fletcher Boron. He forced dozens of city commissioners out, as well as more than 45 LAPD officers. Boron also appointed the first African-American and first woman to the police commission. The modernizer, Arthur C. Hellman, was made chief in 1939 and resigned in 1941 after a strike at the North American Aviation Plant in Inglewood in which he refused to use the LAPD as strike breakers. Now, next we're going to get in to the Zoot Suit Riots. During the early 20th century, many Mexican immigrants came to the United States for work, especially to areas such as Texas, Arizona, and California. They were recruited by farmers for work on large farms and also worked throughout those states in non-agricultural jobs. During the Great Depression in the early 1930s, the United States deported between 500,000 and 2 million people of Mexican descent, including the illegal expulsion of up to 1.2 million U.S. citizens to Mexico, which they called repatriation, in order to reduce the demands on limited American economic resources. By the late 1930s, though, about 3 million Mexican Americans resided in the United States, and Los Angeles had the highest concentration of ethnic Mexicans outside of Mexico. Job discrimination in Los Angeles forced minorities to work for below poverty level wages. The Los Angeles newspapers describe Mexicans with racial inflammatory propaganda, suggesting a problem with juvenile delinquency. These factors caused much racial tension between Mexican immigrants those of Mexican descent and European Americans. During this time, Los Angeles was going through an expansion. The city planners did not plan the expansion well as it caused disruption 
in communal sites, family sites, and familial patterns of social interaction. One major decision that was made was to put a naval school for the Naval Reserve Armory on the Chavez Ravine, which was primarily a Hispanic community. This would later be a hot spot for encounters between zoot suitors and sailors. Lalo Guerrera became known as the father of Chicano music. As young people adopted a music, language, and dress of their own, young men became known for wearing zoot suits. A flamboyantly long jacket with baggy peg pants and sometimes accessorized with pork pie hats, long watch chains, and shoes with thick soles. They called themselves pochacos. And in the early 1940s, arrests of Mexican-American youths and negative stories in the Los Angeles Times fueled the perception that these pachaco gangs were delinquents who were a threat to the bigger community. In the summer of 1942, the Sleepy Lagoon murder made national headlines. Nine teenage members of the 38th Street Gang were accused of murdering a civilian man named Jose Diaz in an abandoned quarry pit. The nine defendants were convicted at trial and sentenced to extraordinarily long prison terms. The convictions of the nine men were ultimately overturned, but the case generated so much animosity within the United States towards Mexican-Americans that the police and press characterized all Mexican youths as pachaco hoodlums and baby gangsters. With the entry of the United States in the World War II in December of 1941, following the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, the nation had to deal with restrictions of rationing and the prospects of constriction. In March of 1942, the War Production Board regulated the manufacture of men's suits and all clothing that contained wool. To achieve a 26% cutback on the use of fabrics, the WBP issued regulations for the manufacture of what Esquire called streamlined suits by Uncle Sam. The regulations effectively forbade the manufacture of wide-cut zoot suits and full women's skirts or dresses. Most legitimate tailoring companies ceased to manufacture or advertise any suits that fell outside the War Production Board or WBP's guidelines, but the demand for zoot suits did not decline. A network of bootleg tailors based in Los Angeles and New York continued to produce the suits. Youths also continued to wear the clothing that they already owned. Meanwhile, American soldiers, sailors, and Marines from across the country went to Los Angeles in large numbers as part of the war effort. They were given leave while awaiting to be shipped out to the Pacific Theater. Servicemen and zoot suitors in Los Angeles were both immediately identifiable by what they were wearing. Some servicemen and others in the community felt that the continued wearing of zoot suits represented the youth's public flouting of rationing regulations. Officials began to cast wearing a zoot suit in moral terms and associate it with the commission of a petty crime, violence, and the snubbing of national wartime rules. In 1943, many servicemen resented the sight of young Latinos wearing zoot suits after clothing restrictions had been published, especially as most came from areas of the country with little experience or knowledge of Mexican-American culture. 
While Mexican Americans were overrepresented in the armed forces, they were not common or respected enough to diffuse these tensions. One of the first conflicts between sailors and zoot suitors was in August 1942 near Chinatown. The sailors were training in the Chavez Ravine and they saw the area as public, but the local youth saw it differently, in part due to the history of the area and the poor planning of the LA expansion. A sailor and his girlfriend were walking when four zoot suitors blocked the sidewalk in front of them. The zoot suitors refused to let them pass and pushed the sailor into the street. The young zoot suitor and the sailor stood their ground in silence until finally the sailor backed down. The zoot suit fashion found its origins in the urban black scene during the 1940s. The style of clothing cultivated a sense of racial pride and significance. However, the fashion statement soon made its way into the wardrobe of young Southern Californian Mexicans and Filipinos who became the quintessential wearers of the zoot suit. The transfer and sharing of the zoot suit fashion indicated a growing influence of black and white popular culture on young Mexican and Filipino Americans. Additionally, analysis of the Los Angeles zoot suit riots and journalists and politicians in and outfits and connections with race relations, slang, jazz music, and dance permits, an understanding of the politics and social significance and what is trivial in and of itself. The zoot suit was originally a statement about creating a new wave of music and dress, but it also held a significant political meaning. The flamboyant and colorful material indicated a desire to express yourself against the boring, and the boring and somber slum lifestyle. The zoot suit provided young African-American and Mexican youths with a sense of individualistic identity within their culture and society as they discovered highly charged, emotional, and symbolic meanings through movement, music, and dress. The zoot suit typically included bright colored fabric, long coats that often reach people's knees, wide flamboyant shoulders, and ruffled slacks. The arm and ankle areas were often much tighter than the rest of the fabric, giving the whole look a very triangular shape. Often the suit was paired, like I said earlier, with things like change and heavy leather-soled shoes, which were typically worn to exaggerate and prove a point of rebellion against the wealth and status that many of the youths were unable to attain through their economic and racial identities. Now, the other side of this zoot suit culture was the urban Mexican-American youth that called themselves pachacos. The female parallel to that were the pachacas. They wore tight sweaters and relatively short flared skirts, often paired with high hairdos, large earrings, and heavy, heavy makeup. Many young Mexican-American women who were not pachacas avoided these clothing styles and hairs, clothing and hairstyles in order to avoid being seen as troublemakers by European Americans. Some women even reported that they had heard of pachacas hiding knives inside their hair. Pachacas formed their own gangs, joined the male pachaco gangs, and carried weapons. This behavior was often said to have been a divergence from the expected feminine beauty and mannerisms of the middle class. Often, for parents of Mexican-American females, the pachacas embodied not only a dissident in femininity, but a threatening, distinctly American identity as well. For some young women, the characteristics of the style 
promoted a sense of social mobility and a cultural hybridity. That was expressed through increased interracial ethnic relations, bilingualism, and Pachaco slang. Pachacas and Chicanas were less referred to in the media, partially because they threatened the gender and sexuality norms that existed at the time. And I salute my hat, tip my hat, and salute you trailblazing women for threatening gender and sexuality norms way ahead of all the rest of us. When acknowledged, they were regarded mainly as secondary members of the male to the male gangs. Many scholars exclude the Pachaca narrative in major events in the Chicano movement. Events like the Sleepy Lagoon incident of 1942 in the Zoot Suit riots of 1943 have been described as a boyish fight over a pretty girl and a brawl involving homeboys. However, records show that many women also participated in these events and have important roles in shaping their outcome. Both men and women were attacked by the so-called Downey Boys, and both Pachacos and Pachacas came back to the 38th Street neighborhood where they had been beaten and moved onward to Williams Ranch, where they found an empty 38th Street. Claims have been asserted that there were women screaming and yelling as the fighting ensued. Continuing into the end of World War II, Mexican-American women were at the center of much of the conflict between Anglo-American servicemen and Mexican-American youths. In the weeks before the riots, servicemen reported that Pachacos had been harassing, molesting, raping, and insulting their wives, girlfriends, and relatives. One local Los Angeles newspaper included a story of two young women who allegedly had been abducted in downtown and raped in a zoot suit orgy. Oh, come on, really? Many of these reports begin building up as one of the major instigators of the coming riots, a serviceman had declared that they will take matters into their own hands since the Los Angeles Police Department has supposedly done nothing to stop the attacks from Pachacos on their women. On the contrary, Horace R. Caton, a writer for the Pittsburgh Courier, attributed the riots to non-Mexican servicemen who he claimed envied the Mexican-American zoot suitors who desired pretty brown creatures with whom they consorted. However, the press was dominated by stories which often claimed that the loose girls of Los Angeles Mexican co uh, culture were responsible for taking advantage of the poor, unaware sailors who had money. Please. On the night of June 3rd, 1943, about 11 sailors got off a bus and started walking along Main Street in downtown Los Angeles. Encountering a group of young Mexicans in zoot suits, they got into an argument. The sailors later told the LAPD they were jumped and beaten by this gang, while the zoot suitors claimed the altercation was started by the sailors. The LAPD responded to the incident, including many off-duty officers who identified the vengeance were identified as the vengeance squad. This is already not, not going to go good. The officers went to the scene seeking to clean up Main Street from what they dued as the loathsome influence of the Pachaco gangs. The next day, 200 sailors got a convoy of about 20 taxi cabs and headed for East Los Angeles, the center of Mexican Americans. The sailors spotted a group of young zoot suitors and assaulted them with clubs. They stripped the boys of their clothing and burned the tattered clothes in a pile. 
They attacked and stripped everyone they came across who was wearing a zoot suit. Media coverage of the incidents then started to spread, inducing more people to join in the mayhem. During the next few days, thousands of servicemen and residents joined the attacks, marching down the streets, entering bars, movie houses, and assaulting any young Mexican-American men they encountered. In one incident, sailors dragged two zoot suitors on stage as a film was being seen, stripped them in front of an audience, and then peed on their suits. Although the police accompanied the rioters, they had orders not to arrest any of them, and some of them joined in the rioting. After several days, more than 150 people had been injured and the police had arrested more than 500 Latinos on charges ranging from rioting to vagrancy. A witness to the attacks, journalist Carrie McWilliams wrote, Marching through the streets of downtown Los Angeles, a mob of several thousand soldiers, sailors, and civilians proceeded to beat up every zoot suitor they could find. Pushing its way into the important motion picture theaters, the mob ordered the management to turn on the house lights and then they ran up and down the aisles, dragging Mexicans out of their seats. Streetcars were halted while Mexicans, Filipinos, and Negroes were jerked from their seats, pushed through the streets, and beaten with sadistic frenzy. The local press lauded the attacks, describing them as having a cleansing effect to rid Los Angeles of miscreants and hoodlums. As the riots progressed, the media reported the arrest of Amelia Venegas, a female zoot suitor charged with carrying a brass knuckle duster. While the revelation of female Pachaca's involvement in the riots led to frequent coverage of the activities of gangs, the media suppressed any mention of white mobs that were involved. The Los Angeles City Council approved a revolution criminalizing the wearing of zoot suits within the limits of the city of LA with the expectation that Mayor Fletcher would sign it into law. Councilman Norris Nelson stated that zoot suit has become a badge of hoodlumism. How is that even a word? Hoodlumism. No ordinance was ever approved by the city council or signed into law by the mayor, but the council encouraged people to take steps to curb illegal production of men's clothing in violation of the war effort. While the mobs first targeted only Pachacos, they also attacked African Americans in Zutsus who lived in Central Avenue Quarter area. The Navy and Marine Corps command staffs intervened finally on June 8th to reduce the attacks, combining sailors and Marines to barracks and ordering that Los Angeles be declared off limits to all military personnel. This was enforced by Navy Shore Patrol personnel. Their official position was that their men had acted in self-defense. As the riots finally subsided, the most urgent concern of officials was relations with Mexico, as the economy of Southern California relied on importation of cheap Mexican labor to assist in the harvesting of California crops. After the Mexican embassy lodged a formal protest with the State Department, Governor Earl Warner, Warren of California ordered the creation of the McGuckin Committee, headed by Los Angeles Bishop Joseph McGuckin, to investigate and determine the cause of the riots. In 1943, the committee issued its report. It determined racism to be the cause of the riots. Good job. Good job, guys. 
1943, the committee determined that the central cause further stating it was an aggregating, aggravating practice of the media to link the phrase zoot suits to crime. The governor appointed the Peace Officers Committee on Civil Disturbances, chaired by Robert W. Kenney, the president of the National Lawyers Guild, to make recommendations to the police. Human Relations Committees were also appointed, and police departments were required to train their officers to treat citizens equally. At the same time, Mayor Boron came to his own conclusion. The riots, he said, were caused by Mexican juvenile delinquents and by white Southerners. Yes, because white Southerners came up just to start riots in Los Angeles. The latter came from a region in which both overt legal and socially sanctioned racial discrimination held sway. Racial prejudice in Los Angeles, according to Boron, is just not a factor. On June 16, 1943, a week after the riots, First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt commented on the riots in her newspaper column. The question goes deeper than just suits. It's racial protest. I have been worried for a long time about the Mexican racial situation. It is a problem with roots going a long way back. We do not always face these problems as we should. The Los Angeles Times published an editorial the next day expressing outrage. It accused, accused Mrs. Roosevelt of having communist leanings and stirring race discord because she asked people to address the fact that they're not dealing with their biases. Awesome. On June 21st, 1943, the State Un-American Activities Committee under State Senator Jack Tini arrived in Los Angeles with orders to determine whether the present zoot suit riots were sponsored by Nazi agencies attempting to spread disunity between the United States and Latin American. Conclusion. Please somebody explain this to me. How do you, the Los Angeles Police Department, give information on communists in Los Angeles to the Nazis and then give information on communists to Imperial Japan and then have the U.S. government come in and say that the people that you gave information to planned a riot. The access of evil came together to plan a race riot in Los Angeles. That makes no sense. It defies logic. The U.S. government, they, <clears throat> Japanese propaganda broadcasts accused the U.S. government of ignoring the brutality of U.S. Marines towards Mexicans. That makes it even worse when the people you're accusing actually use that against you to create propaganda to accuse you of being racist. In late 1944, ignoring the findings of the McGuckin Committee and the unanimous reversal of the convictions by the appeals court in the Sleepy Lagoon case, the Teeny Committee announced that the National Lawyers Guild was a communist front. So, yes, communism and the access of evil are to explain for a race riot in Los Angeles because that makes all the sense in the world. So that is our first episode. Join us next time, join me next time, when we look at the case of where we're going to go further into the history of the LAPD we're going to look at the 
creation of the gangster squad, we're going to look at the scandal of the uh, Bloody Monday scandal. And we're also going to look at a horrible scandal that involved a madam by the name uh, Brenda Allen. So I'd like to see you here again next time when we hopefully will learn more looking at the notes on LAPs.